Good morning, everybody. Today, um, our reading comes from Luke chapter 20, verse 45, through to Luke 21, verses 4. And I'm reading from the NIV translation. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Thank you, Nerissa. Well, this uh, past, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my family, our family was totally blessed by receiving a big package at the front door. And it was a, it was a, 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 a hamper that was from Hampers with Bite. And it was in a big box, but it was, it was actually really quite huge. It was this exact hamper. And it was such a blessing. Someone had, to, had given us this, this hamper. And I opened it up and I was taken by it because it was the perfect hamper for the Nielsen household. It had all the things that the Nielsens liked. Anything, it was everything sweet. So it had jube sort of things like uh, little apricotty type lollies, uh, snakes. Uh, Kyra just goes mad for that sort of stuff. It had uh, chocolate-covered um, coffee beans. What better is there? Coffee and chocolate together. It just is perfect. It had all of these things for uh, a family who are full of sweet tooths. Sweet tooths. Sweet teeth. Sweet teeth, maybe. Sweet tooths, I don't know how you do that. Whatever it is. But, but it was perfect for our family. And we felt so, so blessed. There was something for everyone. Felt totally blessed by this hamper. And you've probably felt the same before, haven't you? Probably had something delivered to you or given to you unexpectedly. Rock up at your doorstep, a meal that's been given to you. And you do, you feel totally blessed because someone's taken the time and the thought to give it to you. You feel sort of overwhelmed at times. So I'm in this state of feeling overwhelmed and having this beautiful uh, abundance of a basket brought to us. And then at the bottom, so I don't know who it was from at that stage, but at the bottom of the box there was a card. And I opened up the card. And, and as I read the card, the weight of this gift actually started to hit me. Not the weight. It was reasonably weighty, but not that weight. The weight, the heaviness or the, the, the intensity of this. Because I know that this box cost a lot for the people who gave it to us. Not that it cost different amounts for different people, but the, the weight of it for them. These are very, very dear friends. And I know that it costs them a lot to give this to us. For them to send us a blessing costs them. And I may not fully know how much it costs them, but they gave it out of the generosity of who they are. And I know it did cost them. And they went, we're still going to give it anyway. Wow, that hit me. Not Getting the box was fantastic and receiving the basket was fantastic. But when I read who gave it to us, the weight really hit me. You know, our passage today reminds us that abundant giving from a place of scarcity costs so much more than scarce giving from abundance. We'll dig a little deeper into that as we consider the draw of money and its impact in the heart and its place in worship within all of this. 
So I've dug into these passages a little bit and done all the research and done some exegesis and learnt a little bit about the, the context of where it stood. But I tell you what, reading and understanding this passage made so much more sense after receiving this. A totally humbling experience. So this morning we've got these two passages in front of us. They're separated by a, a chapter marker. It's quite unfortunate that they're separated by a chapter marker here. Um, but, but we have got these two passages and we'll dig into one that uh, comes up a little bit later as well. But in it, Jesus sets out a lifestyle or sets out, there's a set out a lifestyle that Jesus says, don't follow that. And then there's another passage that sets out a lifestyle that Jesus says, that's where you should be going. And we find the stark example of how a lure, the, money, the lure of money, the lure of fame, the lure of, of prowess can corrupt the heart. Jesus says to one group, that's not how you should be. Yet he heaps praise on a poor widow that gave out of the little that she had. So let's pray and explore this worship that Jesus is looking for. Now, Lord, this morning as we explore these texts, help us to understand them, help us to um, see what you're speaking to us about. And our God, we pray that we may have hearts that are ready to change to be more like you. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, in today's reading that Nerissa read for us, we find Jesus more of an onlooker, like a fly on the wall as such, in this diverse group of people that are floating around. Jesus um, is, is in the temple. So he's in the temple at this time. And in fact, if we go back to Luke 19.47, we hear that he'd been teaching daily in the temple since he'd sort of ridden down on the donkey uh, on that Palm Sunday. Um, and he was teaching daily in the temple. So he's in there doing a whole lot of teaching. You might remember when he came into the temple, he started teaching and he, he, he threw over the, the um, tables and drove out those who were profiting from the worshippers who were coming to, to buy and, and to buy their sacrifices. And he, he was making a stir from day one, I suppose, from day not, as soon as he was coming down uh, into uh, this great procession on a donkey. He was making a stir, I suppose. And, and so people are watching him. People are seeing him. Jesus has done all this. He's teaching in, in ways that were not overly, uh, uh, they weren't popular to the religious leaders especially. And through the last few weeks, we've heard how different groups have, have sort of popped up and tried to uh, trip Jesus up with questions. Questions about, well, what authority does Jesus do all these things in? The Pharisees, they asked a question about, about paying taxes to Caesar. And the Sadducees, they decided to ask a question about, about marriage. And you remember a few weeks ago, Jordan unpacked that for us. So within a few days, each of the key religious factions, they, they have a real go at Jesus. They have a, this good old crack at Jesus to try and make him say something that's going to jeopardise his mission as such. And so that they can grab him and they can take him. But now from Luke 20.45... And if you want to parallel it, it's in Mark 12 as well. We see Jesus making observations. He's no longer teaching. He's making observations about the worship in the temple. He's not preaching to the masses. Rather, he's making these observations to his disciples. But I get the feeling that he's making them with a reasonably loud voice, that people would have been sort of inclining their ear and trying to listen in to what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Because I reckon he might have spoken a little louder when he started this little thing. He says, beware of the scribes. Maybe he said it like this. Beware of the scribes <laughs> to his little group. And you reckon the scribes might have heard? I reckon they probably might have. 
Who were the scribes? The scribes were, were um, Jesus' scribes were people of, uh, a group of people, much like the Pharisees. They were, they were Jewish leaders, and they possibly could have even been Pharisees themselves. But some translations of our scriptures say they were teachers of the law. Scribes, well, they would have been the ones that scribed, transcribed the, the scriptures with great precision. So they were learned, they were knowledgeable, and they had first-hand knowledge of the scripture. I know when I am taking notes or I write something down, I remember a lot more. So they had this knowledge of Scripture that maybe some of the others just didn't have. So they were teachers of the law, but they used the law or the, their, their, their position to promote themselves. So beware of them, Jesus says, because worship seemed to be all about them. We know that worship that's focused on self isn't really worship at all, is it? Rather, it's more of an idolization of ourself. Worship can only be one-directional, and that can only be towards God. Any worship that is about self or bringing self to a higher point than another, just, it can't be worship. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Beware of these teachers of the law, these religious leaders, these scribes, because what we see in them, well, it's not really worship. That's not the worship that God is after. Because real worship doesn't bring glory to self. Real worship brings glory to God. And in fact, Jesus goes after them in three ways. He looks at their pride, he goes after their greed, and he goes after their hypocrisy. Let's look at their pride. He says, they like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces and getting the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts. You can almost hear a bit of the disdain in Jesus' voice. Beware of these law people. They might look the part, but they're full of pride. They wear these flowing robes. Uh, one commentator described them as power outfits. And you can think of power outfits to make yourself look uh, in, a, in a way that other people look and go, oh, wow. They were lapping up the praise of the crowds. Making sure they got the best seats in the church. And I don't mean the front and centre. I mean the best seats in the church, the ones out the front, so they can sit down here and everyone can look at them and go, look at them, they must be really important. Actually, they must be closer to God than I am. Once they were seen, they were praised. So they lapped it up. They gave themselves the highest place at the feasts. They, they did everything that was based around themselves. And, you know, we look at the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and think, how dare you do that? That's no good at all. Drawing attention to yourself for your own sake, that you can be seen as the main men of the day. Praise drawn away from God and praise drawn onto the individual. And we think, no, that's not good. At least we don't do that. That's not us, is it? That's good. But if you've got a position of leadership within the church context or in, within your, your Christian environment, if you're a leader, by the very definition, a leader is someone who has people who follow. So if you're a leader and have a position of power and authority that has been given to you, how you relate to others is so important in the kingdom of God. It's so important to show what the kingdom of God is really like. Unfortunately for our world, we, so many people are getting a negative view of what Christian leaders look like. 
The list keeps growing and growing of celebrity Christian leaders who abuse their position of authority that's been given to them and are found to have had all the competence to build up these great ministries to succeed in the eyes of the world, yet fail in making godly choices. They've got all the charisma to bring people forward and bring and get people in, yet they lack the character. And this is what Jesus is getting at. You see, worship's all about God, not about selfish pride. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were using their religious positions for their own gain. The pride of place. And Jesus calls them out. The NIV application commentary says this. It says, Christian leaders cannot use their pos- or see their positions as an excuse to exercise power or as a means to enhance personal worth. Can't do it. So if you're in any position of leadership as a Christian, we've got to make sure that we are above reproach. We've got to make sure that we are living in a way that honours God and not brings glory to self. Because that's what the Christian leaders were doing. They would do what they could for personal gain. Every action was about how they were seen in community. What they wore, how they sat or where they sat, it all was an elevation of self. So we're called as leaders We're called as people of Christ, not just leaders, because in some way you're a leader. As a Christian, you are a leader, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your sphere of influence, wherever it might be. As a leader, as a Christian, our call is to point others to Jesus, deflect attention from self and bring it to Jesus. And it's so counter counter to the religious leaders of Jesus' time. Our worship's not about being seen. It's not about having the greatest prayer in the group or having a prayer that makes others say, wow. Rather, it's about bringing focus on God and helping others to do the same. So here's a question for us. Do your actions, do your words, and do your heart attitude draw people towards God? Or does it make people run away? And it's not just about leaders, as I said. Because there's a widow that we're going to look at very soon who showed ultimate humility in her worship. No pride, no show, just giving. So, so these religious leaders, their, pri- their, their pride gets them and Jesus attacks them in that. But then he goes after their greed as well. Jesus is pretty scathing about these scribes. He says this, that they devour widows' houses. Devour widows' houses. What on earth does that mean? Devour is a harsh word in the English language, isn't it? To devour something is to totally maul it and grab it and grab it up. Now, in the English, in the in the Greek language where it was originally um, come from, this word is actually as harsh as English. Its literal meaning is to forcibly appropriate or forcibly take, forcibly. So they, these scribes, these religious leaders, are forcibly taking things from widows. Now, the widows, they're they're the the lowest of group of people in in the society. The scriptures tell us that we are to care and love the widows and the orphans. And it almost seems absurd for us to be able to say they devour widows' houses, yet this is what it's saying. The widows, they needed help from people in society. And the religious leaders were the ones that they were able to go to or could go to to help within legal aid or whatever they could get. But some of these religious leaders would do that to gain for themselves. 
They, it was prohibited to take extra payment, but that's what they would do. They would maybe go and say, I'll do a prayer, but you've got to give me something back. I'll do something special for you, but I need something in return. From widows. Their greed, however, stemmed from their pride because their pride elevated them to a point of saying, I see myself better than you, therefore I deserve. It all joins together. Taking advantage of the poor or the vulnerable is just unjust. Now, call us to care for the widows and orphans, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be the least of these. See, Jesus describes the, the, the sharing of the feed and feeding of the, for the hungry or the thirsty or the stranger or the naked or the sick or in the, the prison. He says, if you do it for the least of these, you're doing it for me. So Jesus goes after their pride, which has led them to their greed, but he also then hammers them on their hypocrisy. He keeps going at them. He says that when pride and greed are combined, your prayers are going to become pretentious. They're going to become showy. They're going to be formulated to impress rather than a heart reaction to God. Now, this is what it says in verse 47. It says, for a pretense, they make long prayers. (laughs) Jesus, on his famous Sermon on the Mount, said this, when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The Father will reward the one who prays behind the closed door. Not the eloquent synagogue preacher or the street corner prayer. You know, as a young Christian, I didn't grow up in the church, but as a young Christian coming to church, I used to sit in little small groups and, and hear people pray and thought, I could never pray. But I took courage from this because it wasn't, God wasn't looking for the words that came out of my mouth. Rather, God was looking for an authentic, heartfelt communication. Even if the words didn't sound great, or even if I got the words mixed up, I didn't know all the Christian-y sort of words to say. In the Old Testament, we hear that, that the, the people of God groan and God listens. They didn't have the right words, they just groaned. They didn't have any words for their situation. And God listens. It's not how we do it, it's the response of God to God. Pride, greed, and hypocrisy. They all end with this very, very stern warning from Jesus at the end of chapter 20. It says these men will be punished severely, most, most severely. They're going to be punished for their pride, their greed, their hypocrisy. James 3 verse 1 talks about teachers who will be judged with greater strictness. Greater responsibility means there needs to be an increased accountability. And if that's broken, the consequences are going to be great. And unfortunately, we see that a lot at the moment. This is not how Jesus saw Christian living to be. He didn't see the traits of a disciple being greed, pride, and hypocrisy. And he was pretty blunt towards those who were displaying these sort of things. So he has this go at the scribes, at the religious leaders. So what what is it, or how is it then that Jesus wants us to live? How does he want us to worship and we've got this, page, uh, this chapter break. So quite often we don't read these two sections together. We go, we'll have a, read this little bit in our, in our Bible. But it's good to have this because it's such a contrasting response as we go into the next section of the Scripture. 
There's no real time passing between these two stories or these two events. And as quickly as Jesus shuts down the scribes and religious leaders, he starts to scan the room again. And he's looking for someone to contrast what he's just said. And he sees a widow. He's just told the disciples about the scribes, how they devour widows' homes. And he sees a widow. And he looks at her and he says, this is what humble worship looks like. Now, we need to have a little bit of background as to what's happening at this stage in the temple. There's plenty of people coming in and they're giving all of their financial offerings to the temple, which is the right thing to have been doing. That was their custom. The treasury where they would give their money, it consisted of 13 brass chests and they called them trumpets because they were sort of shaped like an inverted trumpet, small at the top and then it came down to a big bowl at the bottom. And it was like an inverted sort of a, a horn, like a blowing trumpet type thing. And each of them had a different purpose. There were six of these trumpets, uh, these weren't called trumpets, they were called chests, six of these chests that were to go to, uh, it was a free will offering sort of thing, it would go to wherever. And seven of them were to specific items. We won't get right into that. But as it was Passover, the treasury was quite busy. There was people piling in to this place to, to give of their, their finances. And the city was swarming with pilgrims, with locals, and as they passed these chests, they would rattle their offerings into the brass opening. So it would make a noise. So Jesus, he sits back and he scans the room and starts watching how people are giving. He noted people's actions, but it seems that he also noted their motives. Those who were giving didn't know they were being watched by Jesus. They didn't know it was going to be written into scripture or anything like that. Yet Jesus was observing intently. And the first thing that is written that we hear about what Jesus sees is from Luke 21, verse 1. It says, the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. That's what he sees. There's nothing to say that this offering is disapproved of. Jesus doesn't say that's wrong. He doesn't say anything about them. He doesn't say that they gave out of the wrong motives. Jesus doesn't have a go at the rich who are giving here. Everybody was there to give. Everyone was in the temple to worship in some, um, some way. So we can't presume just because someone was wealthy that they had or that they were incapable of being generous in this space. In fact, some of the richest people that I know, the people with the most wealth, are also the most generous people that I know. They give of what God's given them and the kingdom benefits. But the ability to give on a grander scale that many others cannot if you're not careful, it can bring a sense of superiority, a bit of that pride of the, the, the religious leaders, in some way thinking that, well, if I give in this way, I'm going to be okay with God. It can be, be easy to creep in, especially if you're in that culture where you start dropping your money, your copper coins, your whatever they're made of, into these big brass containers. It's going to make a noise, isn't it? It's going to make a noise. And, and it's like when you've got, um, you go to the bank and they've got the machines and you put all your coins into the machine, it just makes that noise. It just... can imagine someone who's really wealthy bringing along a big sack and start pouring it in. You can imagine the noise that it made. Eyes would go, whoa, that's a, that's a big, big one. That, that, they're doing all right. Tongues are going, wow, did you hear that one? That was huge. <laughs> And if you're not careful in that situation, it can lead to a bit of, wow, look at me, I'm better than them. Yet amongst the many people giving from their abundance, he spots what he calls a poor widow with only two copper coins. 
Now, widows, they would have been distinct in, the way, in what they wore, in how they dress, in how they act. They would have been very distinct. She would have been recognisable as a widow. And a widow's life at this time was really tough. It was tough to be a widow, tough not to have a husband to care and to stand up and to advocate for her. But here she was in the treasury, giving her offering to God. There's no big show, nothing like that. Her offering was only two coins. And they were the smallest of all the coins. They were called lepta, literally meaning peeled or fine, because they were made of a very, very thin material, very tiny little coin. This coin was only worth four, one four hundredth of a shekel, or about, if we're in our terms, an eighth of a cent. Now, who remembers cents? I suppose uh, we're probably all just about here. Remember, we had the one cent coins. We can go out and buy our lollies. If you're sort of under 30, you might not remember the one cent coin. Um, but that's what we used to do. We used to go and get, um, well, pre my time, my dad used to talk to us about what was, oh, this is showing my age, um, before, before the, the, the cents. Half pennies, that's the ones, yeah, and that sort of thing. So, so can you imagine, you see a one cent coin on the ground, you pick it up, and all the kids go, that's not a coin, and throw it away. And we go, wow, that's a one cent coin, how amazing is that? And you go to the shop and say, can I buy something? And they go, of course you can't. We don't, we don't deal in that currency. Well, this lady's, what she gives is less than that. Barely anything. In fact, like, I, I suppose it's, it's worthless, in essence, this, this is what this widow's offering is actually worth in a financial space. If we look at this offering in contrast to the scribes, though, these leaders who were devouring widows' houses, this offering actually makes a massive impact. Because what she says is that I'm going to give all of what I have to God. Yet the scribes are saying, I'm going to get whatever I can for me. You know, this widow's offering may not have even made a chink. She probably could have thrown it as hard as she can at these brass things, and it may not have made any noise. Her motivation wasn't to make noise, though. Unlike the scribes or the Sadducees or the Pharisees, there could only be one motivation for her giving in this space, to bring glory to God. Her giving really wasn't going to make a great difference to the temple. The temple counters aren't going to count it up and go, oh, I'm glad they were there. (laughs) It was loose change, not even worth stopping for. It wouldn't have even mattered to anyone if she had just put one of her coins in and kept one for herself. She probably needed it. But she didn't. Because in her action of worship, she gave what she had. And as she did, she was pronouncing, God, you have my heart, you have my life. What a contrast, the religious leaders versus this poor widow. These two passages, they're pointing directly towards not just giving, but towards the heart of the worshipper. Because it tells us who ultimately should be getting the glory. Jesus' conclusion sums it all up for us in Luke 21, verse 3 to 4. He says this, Truly I tell you, he said, This poor woman, widow, has put in more than all the others. All of these people gave gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live. Out of her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. 
If we skip over to the start of chapter 2, we find another example of how money is used for corruption rather than to honour God. And we see Judas, he, he accepts this money to be, betray Jesus. We're not going to camp on this too long. But to say the lure of money drew Judas away from what he had been doing the past three years, following Jesus. As soon as following Jesus turned to following money, there was going to be trouble. And we know that the money didn't do anything for Judas. He didn't go out and, and enjoy uh, a rich life afterwards. In fact, later we hear that he tries to give the money back, regretting this decision to betray an innocent man. And he ends up dying alone. When it comes to money, to our worship, there are some lessons that we need to learn from these passages. So I've got three quick lessons to learn. Our heart response is the thing that really counts. Our heart response is what counts. Now, there's, each year there's one bill that comes through the mail. Well, there's two because we've got two, two, two of these things that we've got to pay for. It's our car registration. They come through the mail. And each year they never fill me with lots of joy because I look at it and go, that's a lot of money. And it comes in and it surprises me and I have to pay this bill. Otherwise, the next time a bigger bill comes in and says, you didn't pay your bill, so now we're going to charge you even more. It, it sort of makes sense. So Vic Roads, they're not sitting at their sort of outside my house waiting for me to come outside in a loving, joyful way and say, here's all your money, your 800 and whatever dollars it is, here's your money and uh, I've really enjoyed this experience. (laughs) Vic Rhodes aren't doing that. All they want to see is their bank balance go up a little bit, that 800. They don't even care who Peter Nielsen is, I'm just a number in their their mind. Um, But that's what they do. That's not how the Lord works. See, the world sees the quantity that is needed to give, but the Lord looks at the quality of the giving. I want to come back to the hamper that we received. Uh, It was a gift given in love. Now, it's a decent quantity of a gift, and we were blessed by the quantity. Most of us, well, we'd be all super happy with receiving a gift like that. Yet, it was the quality in which it was given that made so much more impact on who I am. God weighs our motivations, and it goes for our worship, It goes in our prayers. It goes in our actions that we do for the poor and the needy. It goes for our giving to God's kingdom. The whole lot, it all goes to this. Now, traditionally in churches, and and even in this church, February isn't the best giving month um, based upon our past experiences. However, this February, our giving's been higher than it has ever been before. So I want to say thank you to the church, thank you to everyone online for, for continuing to give. What a blessing it is. We didn't quite hit budget, but it's encouraging that post-pandemic, the faithful people of KSBC are giving and giving to the ministry of God here. We know the last few years have been really difficult and there's been many who have struggled financially just due to the way that COVID has impacted us. But it's also been a good time to assess many things. We've had to assess what's important in our lives. We've had to consider what our lifestyle looks like as the budgets tighten a little bit. But I wonder, when was the last time you assessed what you give? I know many of you now give online as well. And we're able to sort of do this set and forget sort of thing and our giving automatically goes out in what we, we're in a cashless society. No one carries cash around at the moment. But the problem with online giving is that we can set and actually forget. Forget that we are actually giving to the kingdom of God. Forgetting the motivation for our giving. 
Now, don't hear this wrong. Online giving is wonderful and really helpful and necessary, and especially for many people who uh, live in that cashless society. However, my challenge to you is that in your online forgiving, in, in your online giving, don't let it to detract from your motivation of giving. And maybe we need to somehow in the church be uh, open to thinking about how can we um, honour the giving that is happening online, not just the giving that goes into the black boxes at the back on, um, at church. Because the, wid- the widow, she went in the treasury like everyone else, not to find notoriety, but to honour God. And in our giving, how are we doing that? What's your motivation for giving? Is it your heart response to God? The second thing we learn is that giving that pleases God is a giving that costs. And, and this can be the hard one. We've got a plaque, if you haven't sort of seen it, out in the foyer, um, look sort of up on the, on the white wall, there's a plaque up there. And that plaque came from Heathmont Baptist Church. And that Heathmont Baptist Church had the foresight 32, I think, years ago um, to plant this worshipping community. Did it cost Heathmont Baptist to plant? Well, of course it did. They gave money, they gave people, they gave manpower to get this community up and running to, to be who we are today. And the plaque is a testament to that. It quotes 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, which is David's response to Ariuna, the Jebusite's generous offer to give David the threshing floor as a site for the, um, David to build an altar. And he was, they were going to give all these animals to sacrifice there. And it's a very, very, very generous offer. And it was all going to be given to David. And David's response was this in 2 Samuel 24, 24. But the king, so David, replied to Ariuna, No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You'll see it as you go out today. You'll see it up on the wall. David wasn't willing to have the offerings not be a sacrifice to himself. David knew that it had to cost him something because a giving that pleases, that costs us, pleases God. Giving that costs pleases God. Now, I want to put a provision in here because I don't want this to be heard as a prosperity doctrine. You'll not hear me saying, if you give, you're going to abundantly receive back. There is a blessing in giving for sure, but this is a kingdom doctrine. Jesus' heart was stirred by this woman who gave more than she could reasonably afford. You know, I know that there are people in this congregation that when this church um, went into the stage of building where we're sitting now, this auditorium, they pledged more than they thought would be possible for them to give. But now we see the blessing of that giving. And as you gave, the building was built and you've watched it fill with people. And we're somewhat back from COVID. We're not back to our full, um, fullness, but we're somewhat back to, from the restrictions of COVID. We're seeing people come back to church. And we want to continue seeing God's mission grow in and through the people of God here. We still have a building debt, but by the grace of God, that debt is going down further and further and further. We have people who have given loans to, to an offset account, which decrease our interest. So therefore, um, we have, uh, instead of paying interest each month, we pay less interest and more on our principal for the, for the loans. God's good with the generosity of the people, because once we get rid of the loan here, we can then go, God, what do you want us to do with that excess that we don't have to give to our loan? God is good with the generous giving of the people here for the blessing of the church. We have connect groups that give to missionaries above and beyond the giving that they give to the church. 
When a crisis hits, I know there are so many people here that, that give freely to crisis things like the floods um, up north or to, um, to helping out the, the um, people in, in the Ukraine or those that have sought, um, sought help. The church is a very generous church, and I want to say thank you. But may we continue to give out of our heart's response to God in a way that pleases God. The third thing that we can learn about our giving and about God in this passage is that God doesn't discriminate. This story not only tells us a lot about the religious leaders and Jesus' response to them, it not only teaches us about a heart of worship that seeks to bring glory to God rather than himself. It doesn't just tell us that, that God is pleased with the sacrificial giver. Something that is really, really important for us to understand in this story is that there's no advantage in the position where you are. When it comes to being poor or being rich, to those who are educated or not so well educated, to those who can help themselves or can't help themselves, in God's kingdom, all are equal. And the quantity doesn't dictate God's favour. But God is pleased with the heart. So the question we really need to answer is, how does our heart respond to God? How do we become more like the widow who gave out of not just abundance, but gave abundance out of scarcity? Not just in our giving, but in our honouring of God in all of life. Because the reality of this passage is that God, he doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. God wants you. And as we give of ourselves to God, the reality is that everything that we have is his also. Our actions, our worship, our possessions, our time, our offerings. So we can be encouraged this morning that God scans the room, that God watches, and that God sees the humble acts that generally go unnoticed by others. God sees them. God hears the prayers that you silently pray for your friends in need. That God knows the encouragement that you were to a friend who just lost a loved one. God sees it when no one else may. Each year, newspapers and websites will publish a list of the richest people either in the world or in a state or wherever it might be. And Bill Gates has sort of dominated that list for such a long time, but he's falling down the list. Did you know that? Bill Gates is falling down the list. He's actually now at number five of the richest people in the world. Now, does anyone have a, have a clue who the first person would be now? No. He's second, I think. No, he's, he's like second or third even. Who's that? No. That's the one. That's the one. Who said that? Good work. Jeff Bezos. Now, does anyone here? You'll know who he is. Um, he is the Amazon developer. His net worth is, is $192 billion. I don't even know what $192 billion means. What does that really mean? <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> that is crazy sort of money. And the rest of them up there as well. But if Jesus had a t- list of top givers, I get the feeling that the widow would be up the top. I get the feeling that she'd be sitting on top of this list. The widow with nothing, but out of a heart of worship, gave everything. I wonder how your giving impacts your worship. Let's pray. 
Our Lord and God, we thank you for these stories, these contrasting stories that help us understand where God wants us to stand. That our worship is showing worth of him and him alone. That it's not about a show. That it's not about what we do. It's not about the quantity. Rather, it's about the quality of our worship, showing worth to our Lord. So help us today to know that, to live that out, and to, in some way, encapsulate this heart of worship that God calls us to do. We give you thanks, God. Amen.